count it a high joy and privilege to be with all of y'all this morning, um, to stand in the place that we do, um, to have the opportunity to speak um, to you today. Um, it's a blessing. It's a huge blessing. Um, and we know that no preaching will be done except the Lord be here. So you pray for that intent. He's been with us in the song service thus far, been with us in the prayers. Um, the Lord is here. Um, he has no reason to stay here other than He has promised us. Um, and we go forth confidently knowing that that promise, Lord willing, will stand fast. Um, I have a subject on my mind. Um, we'll start in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Um, it's something that I've kind of been wrestling over recently just because um, of the nature of it. But um, some of the prayer requests that went on this morning um, with dear Sister Patsy, Sister Patsy and Sister Geraldine, um, it's confirmation to my mind and my heart that this is something that needs to be said. Um, the Lord moves in very mysterious ways. Um, so y'all pray that this is of Him. That it is a word fitly spoken and that I do not get in the way. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1 reads this. Thou therefore, my son in the ministry, or my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. The husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits." Would y'all agree with me this morning that the purpose of man, that the purpose of you being here right now, that the purpose of your very life is to glorify the name of Jesus Christ? I would say that it is. I would say that the very existence of man is a testament that God himself is good. When we go back to Genesis and we read about the creation, before time ever was, we see God working right there and we see God moving to bring a people into himself in love. We see the foreknowledge of God. We see the love of God given to a people before the world ever was. That's election for us. That's a doctrine that we hold very close. But in creation, we see God literally moving across the face of the waters with the Spirit of God saying, let there be life, creating all of the animals, creating all of the trees and the grass around us. And at the end of it, he said that it was good. God created a good thing. And everything around us, just from actually being there and it standing as it is, it's a testament that we have a very active creator, that we have a very active God upholding nature itself around us. And we see him in that and it glorifies him in that. Man created on the sixth day in the very image of God himself. It is a testament to who, he is a testament to who God is, but also his goodness. It's the very crown pinnacle of what he created. Man's purpose from the very beginning was to glorify God. We as his people, we as his people in the church have a special privilege in that. 
that we know the things that we know, that we are able to knowledgeably go through life and see Jesus as he is and serve him in the capacity afforded to us as we trust that we are doing this day. But man was meant to glorify God. The problem in that, or not necessarily the problem, just a stumbling block that I see for myself, is when we go through trials and we go through tribulations and we go through those things in life that make it very, very hard for us to see the Lord. We know our purpose. We understand our purpose. We understand that we should look to Him every day with faith unfeigned and follow in the footsteps that He has told us to go. But there are times in our life that seem quiet. There are times in our life that we don't feel the Lord's presence like we would at other times. Some of the most precious times that I've ever had in the kingdom of God have been right here in the service of our Lord. And when the preaching of the gospel was done in power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit, it's where, like we said in the beginning, it's where he's promised us to be. Like if I want to go see Brother Jeremy Duckworth, I best go to his house. Know where he's, I know where he's going to be right there when work is done and when he gets home. He's going to be there with his family. Must the same when Sunday morning comes or when it, whatever morning or night comes when the people of God are meeting together. God has promised to be here. This is his house. He is here with us in this assembly. He's promised to be here. And we should go whenever that time of meeting comes because he promised to see him. But there are times in our lives, whether it be the nature of just what we go through in life, Tribulation can take a lot of different forms. Maybe it's the death of a loved one. Maybe you've lost something that's very great to you. Maybe you've lost your house. Maybe you've lost whatever it could be. Tribulation takes a whole lot of different forms in this life. But, you know, God's not just the God of the hills. He's the God of the valleys, too. And how we serve him in those times in the valleys is critical for our faith. It is critical for our trust on him. And I'm going to tell you, child of God, there is a special blessing even in those temptations to trust God as we know him to be faithful, as we know him to be the deliverer, even when we don't feel him in strong ways like we have in times past. So that being in the introduction, in the introduction, in the introduction, if I can speak, excuse me, um, we'll start here in verse one. That we've read, Thou therefore, my son Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul is talking to Timothy right here, his son in the ministry, and he's giving him guidance how to shepherd the people of God. He's giving them guidance how to pastor a church, if you will, like that. But he's also giving him sound advice how to live as an individual. And this is advice that we need here in this life. And the Bible is speaking to us right here, albeit he's speaking to a young preacher Literally, And what he's saying is, Timothy, be strong in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, y'all know me. Y'all know I like to work out. I like to run. That's just a hobby of me. You can call me crazy if you will. I probably am a little bit. But when I think about being strong, I think about somebody who's moving a lot of weight, whether that be on a bench press or a squat or whatever, and they're doing it right. They're doing it correctly. They're doing it with good form. They're not cheating the movement, as it were. But, you know, the Bible defines strength in a lot of different ways. It's not absolute strength, necessarily, of how you would just push together to a maximum. It's strength to endure. endure. 
It's resilient strength. It's strength to keep going through things that you don't think that you can keep going through. One of the first verses in the Bible where we see strength brought out directly to a man is in Joshua chapter 1. And if you will turn to me, there's some good stuff to be found over there that we want to read to you this morning. In Joshua chapter 1, and in verse 1 says, Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Now picture this, Moses has died. One of the greatest prophets, one of the greatest people to ever live in the Israelite culture has passed away. He was the man that literally survived by his mother putting him into, into a little basket and in a little ark, as it were, floating him down the river. And by God's providence, it came right to the feet of Pharaoh's daughter. It's an amazing start to this story. He grew up in the house of Pharaoh. He was sheltered in a place where pretty much were, that's the only place that a little man like that could have been sheltered because Pharaoh had put down a decree that said to kill everyone that was just like Moses. The providence of God was at work, and God saw Moses through that time. And as we don't want to go through the entire life of Moses, but y'all know all the amazing things that they saw. They saw the Red Sea parted when Pharaoh himself was going after the children of Israel, and they were essentially at their death. They were at a place where they could not get out. They were at a place of great tribulation. And God blessed the people of Israel with strength right there to endure, to go through a place where there was no way in the Red Sea and to come out at the end fine. Moses was the spokesperson between God and man. Moses was one who literally saw as it were, the hinder parts of God. He talked to him as a man talked to his friend. This was a powerful prophet that we find here. I'm sure Joshua thought in his mind, there's never going to be another one like Moses. And I'm certainly not him. We all in this life, if we are of the right frame of mind, should feel unworthy to be a servant of the Lord. Because we are. But he grants us that strength to be just that. He grants us that strength to honor him in our daily lives from, de from day to day. He grants us that strength to glorify him. But it says in verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, this is God talking to Joshua here. Now, therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel, every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto thee, as I said unto Moses, from the wilderness of this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites, and unto the great sea, to, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your coast. This is a huge hunk of land right here. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life, as it was, was with Moses so will I be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Be strong and of good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide an inheritance in the land, which I swear unto my fathers to give 
unto them. Look at what God is telling directly to Joshua right here. He's saying be strong and of good courage. But he's not saying be strong and of good courage like I would look over to my workout partner that I know doesn't have the ability to do another rep on the bench press. And I say just be strong, just go again. You know, and the weight just falls on him like he doesn't have any ability to press it up. No, it's nothing like this. God has already told Joshua you have the strength to go through this because it's not Joshua's strength that he's going by. He's going on the strength strength of the Lord. He said, I will be with you. I'm going to be with you the same way that I was with Moses. And I wonder if Joshua thought in his mind, is he really going to do it? When they come to the river Jordan in that place, that's much like the Red Sea that Moses and the people of Israel went through. He probably thought, how are we going to go through this? The Jordan River is at flood stage. This is more packed together with water than it ever has been before. There's no way to go through. There's no way to get out. We can't do it. But by the grace of God and by the guidance of God, those 12 priests, I think it were, went through and they put monuments within that river Jordan on each side, just like the Lord had said. And when those priests' feet hit the water, a path cleared the whole children of Israel congregation, went through unscathed. God's true to his promises as he was with Joshua. He's true to those promises with you. Sometimes we get in our minds that... There's a certain way that the Lord needs to deliver. The Lord can deliver any way he wants to, number one. And sometimes we confuse prosperity with deliverance. There could come a time in our lives where we have the bare minimum of what we need. Now, the Lord has promised to provide that. And the Lord is good, and we should serve him even if we come to those points because he's given us so much. And Lord willing, will tell you what that so much is later on in the message. Because it's too good not to miss. Um, But we see that. Sometimes we misconstrue what deliverance is truly. But in looking at this, we are promised that deliverance will come. And deliverance will come through the power of the Lord. Not through your own power. That's why I say that our faith is most active, if you will. Our um, confidence in the Lord is greatest when we don't hear him. Because there would be no other rational way out but for him to go through there. That's what Joshua was. That's what it means to be strong and of good courage. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in his strength. Right before the whole armor of God in Ephesians 6, it talks about be strong, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. The same sentiment is right there. Right after that, he tells you to put on the whole armor of God. Be prepared for that strength to be revealed. Be prepared for my strength to be made perfect in weakness, as it was told to the Apostle Paul there when he had a thorn in the flesh that he was not able to bear. He bore it through the Lord's strength, even though he just couldn't feel that he could bear it out of himself. And he prayed three times for this to go away. And when you pray for something, child of God, and it does not go away, you keep praying for it. But once you get your answer, you be satisfied with that answer. Whatever the Lord tells you is true. Whatever he um, gives you to know and gives you to abide in, that is the best place to abide in. And whenever you start questioning that, you remember what he's done for you. You remember the care that he's taken for you even before the foundation of the world. You were special to him before time ever was. You are special to him right now and you'll be special to him when time is no more. Lord takes care of his people and the Lord loves his people. As we go back 
to 2 Timothy, chapter 2, we find that he says be strong, but he doesn't say just be strong in nothing. He says be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, that's the definition of what our strength should actually be. You know, like I said, we're not just strong in it. We're not just strong in nothing. We're strong in the Lord's strength of himself. But the source, child of God, of your strength in this life, you individually, and the, st- and the storage of strength that we find in a church capacity as well, it's from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's from us looking at those things that Christ has done in the eternal aspect, and we grow on the fuel of that here in time. A good verse to prove that is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And in the last two verses, where it says, for our light affliction, and he calls this affliction in this world light because it's compared to what will be received in glory and eternal bliss that the Lord has promised to all them that love him and love his appearing. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, we're not looking at the things which are around us. That's not where we're drawing our motivation from. That's not where we're looking for if we're looking for fuel to serve the Lord and glorify Him as our daily privilege is. We don't look at the things which are seen, but we look at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. They vary. They go up and down with the, time, with the times of this time world. The things which are seen are temporal, but we look not at those things. For the same things which are seen are temporal, and the things which are not seen are eternal. Child of God, be strong in the grace that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to those eternal things. Look at what he's done for you, and be glad in that. There's a verse in Luke chapter 17. You don't have to turn to it if you don't want to. I'm just going to kind of try to quote this, and we'll move on. But Jesus is talking to the disciples, and he said, It is impossible, but that offenses will come. What that's saying is this. There's no way in life for us to avoid tribulation. There's no way for us in life to avoid those things that would be a stumbling block to us. In our faith, they're bound to happen. They are in this sinful world. We are sinners ourselves. Sometimes we put those stumbling blocks in between us. Sometimes it's another person that puts that stumbling block between us. Offenses will come. But what do we do with those tribulations? What do we do with those offenses? We trust the Lord that we would move past those things. If we see a stumbling block in front of us, pray that we would understand that stumbling block and we'd be able to move past it. If it's something that we need to forsake that's sinful, God be our helper, we would forsake it. We would totally leave it out of the way. We would go past it. But offenses will come in this life. And we would be amiss to say in our Christian walk that everything was going to be sunflowers and roses. And that we would just go on without any trouble in life. That's not what the Lord promised. If we look in John chapter 16... We find this in the first verse. 
This is Jesus talking to his disciples right here. And he said, these things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. That this would not be a stumbling block to you. This is the same word that we saw in Luke chapter 17. These things have I spoken to you that you should not be offended. And then he gives you some um, things that will literally happen to the disciples right here. He gives them the actual label of the tribulation that they're going to go through, the actual event. He says, they shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. When we look at this, we understand what it means to be offended. It's a stumbling block to us. There's actually a place in Scripture that we can look to that talks about a man being put out of the synagogue. And it was a blind man that was come to by Jesus. And Jesus, through charity and through the power of God, literally healed this man to where before he was blind, but now he sees. But this man does not know Jesus because the only time that Jesus was around him, he was blind. He said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And the seventh time that you wash, you're going to come out clean. This man did not know Jesus by sight. But when these other people of the city saw him and he came into the synagogue, they said, what is this, what is this man doing seeing right now? He was blind before, but apparently he can see right now. They brought his parents in and they questioned them and they said, yes, he was blind from his birth, but just so far as how he sees right now, we have no idea how it happened. We know how it happened. Jesus happened. And Jesus has that power to heal the blind and to heal the sick and to raise the dead. He has that profound power. That's not a surprising thing to us. And he has the power to make a sinful man preach the gospel for him to be a vehicle of exhortation and peace to the people of God. It's something that would na never naturally happen on its own. But as this story goes further, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as they accuse this blind man, they go further and further and further pushing him, saying, why and why are you saying like you were blind and now you see and you're talking about something about this man named Jesus? Like, what, what is going on right here? And the blind man, rather than conforming to societal standards and drawing back and drawing back and drawing back, he gets bolder and bolder and bolder, going from, I don't know who this man is. Some people say he's the son of God, but I don't know. And now I just see. He goes all the way to saying, I don't care what these people say about him, but I believe this man is the Messiah because he did a miracle on me. He made a blind man. I was that blind man. Now I see I'm not backing down from that. And he was put out of the synagogue for that. For his great love that he had for Jesus, this man suffered to be put out of the synagogue. But I'm going to tell you, child of God, whatever your circumstance is, of if men come and they put you out of the synagogue, you know who's going to meet you after that? Jesus is going to meet you after that. This man was met by Jesus. They didn't know him by face, but as soon as Jesus said something, he knew exactly who Jesus was. And this man was comforted. And he knew that he was in the right place and he did the exact right thing. Even though man said that he did not and they disciplined him for that, for something that was unjust. It also talks about that, that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. If there was ever a message 
of an individual being turned around by the power of God, it would have been the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 8 and in verse 1 is literally quoted as saying, Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter, and he came to persecute the church of God. He came to do wickedness there. He came to kill church members. He came to kill Christians. But what did God do with that? He took this hard-hearted man who had no spirit within him. He took this hard-hearted man and he touched that man on the road to Damascus and he changed him. Where that heart was breathing out threatenings and slaughterings from him before, now is praising God and asking him, Lord, what would thou have me to do? The Lord has power to change tyrants' hearts. It says somewhere in Psalms, I believe it is, as the rivers, as the Lord can change the rivers of the water, so he can change the heart of a king. He's already changed the rivers of the water at the River Jordan and at um, the Red Sea as well. He can change the heart of the king. We have no doubt about that. But we find those places as, as examples to the tribulation that we could go through. But if we look later in John chapter 16 and in verse 33 and 34, we find these things here. Excuse me, 32 and 33, there is no 34. <laughs> Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone, and yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. He's talking about what's going to happen at the cross. He's talking about that these disciples are going to be scattered, and they're going to be in different places, kind of discombobulated, if you will, not knowing where they need to go. It sounds like a tribulation, doesn't it? It is a tribulation. And many of these people, save John, all 11 of them are going to deny the Lord. They are going to go through one of the most traumatic things that a man could ever go through when they're looking at their Savior. But he says, I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. There is no question about that. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The context between the first few verses of this chapter that we read unto you and what's kind of sandwiched in between what we just read to you is this. Jesus acknowledges that he is going to go to the cross and he is going to die and that he is going to go to the Father. But when that time comes, he has promised to send them a comforter. He has promised to send to them the Holy Spirit in a new way that's going to come down at Pentecost in the form of the preaching of the gospel. It's going to comfort the people of God. And he tells them within that to be of good cheer. He has overcome the world through this peace of the, of the comforter coming and dwelling with them and them not being alone, them not being let, left without any comfort. He has told them they're going to have peace in that, even in the midst of these tribulations. And he tells us the source of that peace comes in the fact that he has overcome the world. Sometimes I feel like I have no ability to overcome the world. And that would be true of a natural standpoint. That would be true of my spiritual standpoint. But in Jesus, I'm in him. 
And I overcome the world through that. I don't walk by my own strength. I walk by His strength. I don't walk by my own authority. I walk by His own authority. I don't walk in what I think would be best. I walk in what the Word of God says, Lord willing. I fall so short so many, so many times, but that's my goal to do it. But he says, I have overcome the world. Back in 2 Timothy, and in chapter 2, let's continue over here. He says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. He's saying, Timothy, the exact things that you have heard of me, the exact things that have been preached to you by men of sound faith and of sound order and that walk in the ways of Jesus Christ, you commit the same thing to other people. You don't alter it. You don't add anything to it. You don't take anything away. You commit these exact same things to one another. And he says, Thou, therefore, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And as we've talked before, we all have things that we endure hardness. And in this world, will give us hard situations. We will find ourselves in hard situations. But what is the point of that? The next verse tells us, no man warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. What is our portion in life? What is our goal in life to accomplish? To glorify the name of Jesus Christ and him alone. If I do that with my life, I would be a happy man. I would be thankful that I was able to suffer for his name's sake. You know, that was a verse to be found in Acts chapter 3, or Acts chapter 4, I don't exactly remember where it was, but the apostles, I believe it was Peter, James, and John that came, maybe James was off the scene by then, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter to get the illustration across. We find these people who are preaching the gospel, and they take them into prison, and they literally beat them to a pulp. And when they come out, they command them to never preach this gospel again or something worse is going to happen with them. Do you know what they did right when they went out of that prison? They rejoiced that they were counted worthy of the reproach of men in preaching the gospel. We should be of that same frame of mind. Jesus should be that important to us. The truth that is in Christ Jesus should be that important to us. The church should be that important to us. That we are thankful that we're counted worthy to go through things like that. The Lord will bear us through. There's no question in my mind. The Lord's church has seen very, very hard days in times past. They've seen persecution. They've seen wars. And Satan tried to stamp out the church right when it started. He sent that evil emperor Nero, as it were, to persecute the church of God, to persecute Christians. And the church was not stamped out, but it grew because it was under the care of the Lord. But we find these things where we endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And in verse 4 in 2 Timothy, it gives us an example of we being likened to soldiers. We being likened to soldiers in a war. And it says, No man war that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. I need an illustration to understand this. I don't know about, about y'all, but this is what I think of when I think of this word. A soldier 
that is in the United States Army today. His job is to be a soldier. That is what he studies. That is his profession. That's what he does. What this verse is talking about when it entangles, um, when it talks about entangling himself with the affairs of this life, this would be the equivalent of a soldier being out to war in a foreign land, not focusing on being a soldier, not focusing on fighting the enemy, not focus on, focusing on what could happen if he abandons his post, but he's thinking about doing some other job. Maybe he's like a culinary chef or something like that. All he's thinking about is getting home to his kitchen and saying, how can I make the best food? And that's what his mind is on. It's on something completely different, right? So when it talks about no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier, it's talking about us. We need to be focused on our warfare. We need to be focused on our job at hand. We need to be focusing on serving and pleasing the Lord. We don't entangle ourselves with something different. Now, what that doesn't mean is that we just live like, like monks, as it were, and just go off, separate ourselves completely from, completely from society and go off that way. We have things in life that are necessities of life. We need, we need to make money for our family. We need, to, we need to eat food. We need to go out. And we have extracurricular curricular things that we do. We have, hot, we have hobbies that we do. We talked about that this morning, me and Brother Jeremy. Brother Jeremy did going out down the road. But those things are not what defines you. What defines you is your place in Christ Jesus. What defines you is that you are a child of God and everything is secondary to that. Everything is secondary to who you are in Christ Jesus, and that is your warfare as a good soldier. What comes after that is second to that. If a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. Now this gives a picture of something different. This gives a picture of a runner that's in a competition. He's striving. He's running. He wants to win the race that's set before him. But it gives a caveat to this, that he cannot strive unless he strives lawfully. That means he abides by the rules. Now, what this is most likely referring to in that time was the ancient Olympics that was coming on then. And let me ask you this. If the Olympic runner was going around the track and he just decides to cut a complete corner on all, on all of that track, get ahead of everybody, and just win the race that way, they're going to give him the medal and that little, you know, leaf crown or whatever they have whatever they have over there and he's going to win the race right no he cheated he cut all the way across the track he did not strive lawfully he did not strive with the exact um, rules that were supposed to be abided right there child of God for you to feel the peace of the Lord for you to be able to serve him for you to be able to to um, please him who has chosen you to be a soldier, you must strive lawfully. You must strive in the ways that he has told you to strive in, not the ways that you think would be a good idea, but you would go faithfully running the race that is set before you with patience, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The last example that it gives here in 2 Timothy, chapter, um, 2 Timothy 2 and in verse 6 reads this. The husbandman that laboreth must first be partaker of the fruits. Now, this example that it gives right here is an, is an example of a farmer. 
And it's an example of someone who has tilled the soil, he has gotten the fruits of his labor, and he has done well with what he has set out to do right there. We actually see an example of this in Matthew chapter 20, where it talks about the laborers in the vineyard. And this is a good place, in my opinion, to try to understand this passage. But it talks about husbandmen that labor. We all have a different labor in life. Some of us labor for a long time after we join the church. Some of us labor for a very short time after we join the church. But you know what's in common with all of us. We all receive that penny that's talked about in Matthew chapter 20. We all receive the joy of the Lord of knowing that Jesus has paid it all. And we are satisfied in that thing. We are a partaker of the fruits that God has given us. You see, all a child of God can do, all I can do in my life, is try to keep my fertile ground tilled up and ready for whenever the Lord would speak to me, whatever he would tell me to do. I need to try to keep my mind and my heart open to hear those things. Sometimes that means pushing out the things of the world. Sometimes that means getting my ground that's a little bit thorny. All of these extra things in life have come and I'm too busy to listen to the Lord. Sometimes that means taking those thorns out to make that fertile ground. Sometimes that means I study what the preacher says a little bit better, that it doesn't go out of my mind so quickly. I embrace that thing. Sometimes it means taking the cares of life that I have right now and committing them to the Lord that I can have a free mind to listen to what Jesus has to say. But you know what a child, can, child of God cannot do? He cannot make fruit of himself just, just happen. It has to be blessed of the Lord. The Lord has to grant you his spirit to be able for, those fruit to, for that fruit to come forth, to share that fruit with one another. And husbandmen that laboreth must first be partaker of the fruits, and the fruit give, is given by the Lord. If you turn with me in closing to 1 Peter chapter 1. <coughs> And in verse 6, we'll read down to about verse 9 as we close. He says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That means all types of temptations. That means all types of trials that would come upon you. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than that of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. The context of these verses that we just read to you in First Peter is that that is very, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. And if you haven't read it already, I would encourage you to read it because it goes over all of these wonderful eternal blessings that the child of God will receive by Jesus Christ's hand and by his hand alone. It talks about how they are strangers scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia. And that's the condition that the New Testament church found themselves in. They were hundreds of miles apart from one another. They probably felt very alone. But what does Peter call their attention to rather than saying, look, I know you're so far apart and I know that it's hard, but 
everything will be okay, I guess. No, he doesn't do that. He puts their minds and their perspective and points them to those things which are above. He says, set your mind on those things above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Don't be entangled with this yoke of bondage again unto fear. Don't be looking at these timely things. Don't be looking at these temporal things. Look at the eternal things. Look at what he says right here in verse 2. He says he's talking to elect. According, he's going to tell them why they're elect. He's going to reference the evidence of why they're elect, what it took for them to be the elect. He said, according to the foreknowledge of God, that is the foreloving of God, that is God himself putting special attention on you before time ever was in choosing you, placing you into a place of love in Christ Jesus. God loved you before time ever was. Through sanctification of the Spirit, that is the regener that's regeneration, that's the new birth, that's God setting apart your spirit and putting it inside of you where you now are able to understand spiritual things and that life is to you personally, right here between conception and death at some point, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, the justification and the particular redemption that God has given to his people those people that he loved, those people that he has placed his spirit within them, he has justified them, he has sprinkled them with his blood. They are clean right now through his blood. He talks about the inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, and that they are kept by the power of God. Those who are in Christ will never fall out of Christ. They are forever there because God himself placed them there. That is the context of why Paul says, where, or why Peter says, excuse me, wherein ye greatly rejoice. And through these verses, even though they are sorrowful to read on their own account, Peter means, us, means for us to hang on those words, wherein ye rejoice. Where is our rejoicing? Where is our mind? Where are we to keep our hearts as we go through this sinful life, where we go through this life that is fraught with tribulations, where we know tribulations and trials are going to come. He says, wherein we greatly rejoice in those eternal things, though now for a season, if you be in heaviness through all these different types, these manifold temptations. And he tells you a little something about these temptations, about this trial of your faith. He says it's more precious than gold. The trial itself, albeit grievous and albeit maybe it's caused by some sort of sinful action on someone, on someone else's part or even on your part, he still says that trial is precious because it's an opportunity for you to prove the Lord right, to prove his strength even in your weakness. Child of God, it's difficult sometimes to go through this life when you feel like God is being silent. You know, David felt that way. Job felt that way too. And I, I'm sorry, I can't bear to not say this. Job chapter 23 is where we find that statement. Where he says in Job chapter 23 and in verse 8, he said, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. God is there. God sees everything that's happening to Job, all the misfortune that he's gone through. He's seen that he's lost his children. He sees that he's lost his home, his livestock. He's seen that he, he sees that he's lost everything. But Job says, I don't feel it right there. 
I don't know where he is. I know that he is there. I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand in the latter day, but I don't see him super clearly right there. But look at the unfeigned faith of our brother Job here. He says, on the left hand where he doth work, I do not behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand, but I cannot see him. Listen to this. But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. When the Lord looked at Job and he saw what he was going through, Job had confidence, and that day came, but he had confidence that there was coming a day where he would see the Lord again, to where he would be opened up and he would be able to behold that grace again. That day came for Job, child of God. And if you're going through something right now that's hard to bear, that's a trial of your faith, that day will come for you as well. And if you feel that that day will never come, you look at Jesus. You look at the Lord and you look for the care that he has for you. You look for what he's done for you since time ever was. You look for what he's doing for you right now. and He's committed his love towards you. Greater love hath no man than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. God loves his people. God takes care of his people. Though we are in these manifold temptations, though we are many times in this trial of our faith, we know the Lord is faithful. God, may God let you bless you. My prayer.